Hey everybody, it's Mark Thompson and welcome to another edition, but not just any new edition of the Chief Executive Podcast. I've got Sir Richard Branson, my dear friend for more than two decades. He's rocketing into space. It's been a long time ambition. And here's a person who's been a risk taker at every level, both in terms of the personal risks and the entrepreneurial ideas and innovation that he's brought to the world and the social impact that's making a huge difference. Listen to how Richard and I share some of his insights into taking on the most bold of risks and how each and every one of us, not just the Richard Bransons of the world, can rise to just this kind of intergalactic challenge. Here's Richard. So where I wanted to start a bit is, is of course, with the Virgin Mobile launch. Um, and one of the, uh, the kind of uh, conventional wisdom tells you buy versus build when you're looking at some of the business decisions in, in growing new companies. With Virgin Mobile, you're trying a a bit of something different there. You've always been a builder, but this is also a virtual partnership as well. Could you talk about your plans there? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think the reason that Virgin, to date anyway, has never fallen flat in its face is that, is that, we, is that we do start companies from scratch. We, we see a, um, a gap in the market, and um, we feel that something's not being done very well, and then we go in there and try to you know, fill that gap. And, um, and if it works, we... You know, we, we, we carry on investing and building, and if it doesn't work, we cut our losses early on and move on to something else. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, the advantage of that is we, we, we haven't had any sort of massive disasters. We've had things that have not gone quite as well as we would like, but it's, we've never had any major disasters. Um, uh, in America, we've, we, 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 we've recently, um, I mean, I, about two years ago, came here, and I couldn't understand why people didn't buy mobile phones, um, why kids didn't buy mobile phones. And uh, when I looked into it, I realized that um, there were very complicated contracts that people, the kids had to um, sign. Um, it was very expensive. Um, the network coverage was not that great. Um, and, uh, and there wasn't really a, a strong brand that was targeting at the, the slightly younger end of the market. And, um, uh, and we, um, about two or three years ago, launched Virgin Mobile in the UK, and it's the fastest-growing mobile phone company there. Um, and so we thought we'd give it a go in America. Um, we've got tremendous distribution. Uh, we've tied up with um, MTV as our partner, so we've got um, uh, the MTV brand as well as the Virgin brand. Um, and you know, we're only two, month, two months old, but it's going well. How did you pick the timing right now? It's a bit counterintuitive with the economy and what's happening in retail. Uh, how do you decide when to go? I think, I, I think quite often when, um, when things are tough, it's actually a good time to launch new businesses. I mean, for instance, most of the major phone, mobile phone companies, their share prices are, are on the rocks, and, um, and, and they're not making great profits, and therefore they're not going to have the resources to... Um, to spend in the way that they would have done in the good times, um, and uh, so actually, it's you know I believe it's it's you know it's a good t it's a good time to come in with a product which also saves people money. So I mean, there's less noise in the market, less competition. You think there's, there's marginally less competition, um, but also uh, the consumer is actually looking looking for a looking for a good deal, um, which, which um, in, in the good times they're not looking for a good deal in, in quite the same way. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, what's fascinating, I mean, the, the, the prepaid market, 
uh, in the UK is 70% of all sales. In America, it's only 10% of all sales. So there's quite a lot of quite a big educational process, but I think the Virgin's quite good at getting its messages across, and we, we plan to do our best to educate. When you think about the, the various new companies that you've started, um, many people think of you as the main marketing weapon for the Virgin identity and the Virgin brand. Nowadays, there's been a kind of shift from looking to charismatic leaders as being the, the, the be-all and end-all for, for businesses. For you, you have a collection of over 200 companies of, run by names of people who we haven't heard of before. Could you talk about how you, you give away ownership and, how, and what you see the role of the CEO is in these organizations? Yes, I mean, I think, um, I mean, Virgin, I suppose, is an unusual brand in that, you know, I mean, Nike specializes in shoes, uh, Microsoft specializes in computers, Coca-Cola specializes in soft drinks, and, and I suppose Virgin sees itself more as a, a way of life brand where uh, we love challenging most industries if, if, we, if we feel that you know they're, they're not doing something well and that we can get in there and shake them up and 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 do it a little bit better um, but if you challenge a lot of different industries you've got to run your company slightly differently than if you just got one you know one one big company in in one particular sector and so what I will do is I will um, you know look at look at an area of industry, see whether it, it has a soft underbelly, see whether it's you know, overcharging the consumer, ripping them off. If I've decided it is, we'll, we'll go in and attack that industry. Um, for three months, I'll get very involved myself. But also in that three months, I will spend the time finding you know, excellent people to run that company. Um, I'll give them a, a, a decent stake in that company so that you know, they can run it as if it was their own company. Um, and I hope that they will become multimillionaires by uh, making that company successful, um, which will a enhance the Virgin brand, um, and you know, but the, the, the wealth that's created from that will enable us to go on and take on the next company, <laughs> and that's and that's the way that's the way we do it. What what are you looking for in those people that that may be different, uh, that's special for what you're looking for that means something to this lifestyle brand you're talking about? What kind of people does that? Well, mean? I think I mean the, the key thing we're looking at peop in people is um, an ability to to Look to motivate people, the ability to uh, to bring out the best in people. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, everybody says it, but it has to. It can never be said too often. I mean, all all the company is is a, is a group of people, and um, and if you've got um, an exceptional group of people on say on your airplanes, um, uh, in the working on the same plane as your rival airline that doesn't have an exceptional group of people. Uh, your airline will do well, and that other airline will not do well. And um, so, you know, we want we want the kind of leader who uh, praises people and doesn't criticise people, um, and who looks for the best in people, and and and, um, and you know, who's willing to you know be pretty determined and and you know try to you know work work extremely hard to make sure his business is successful or her business. Mm. When, when I talk to many business leaders as well as leaders in, in life, one of the things that is most helpful to the, to the aspiring manager is to hear about the challenges that are, that are faced in the, in the tough times. And I'd love to look for a moment at, at the way you make decisions and think about decisions. Uh, can, can you share a time, can you take us back to a time when there was an idea that you were just thrilled about, that you were just hugely enthusiastic about and it ended up being a, a bit of a flop or a, or a big disappointment? Uh, and then I'd love to look at the inverse, too, whether there was yeah. something you were lukewarm or ambivalent about that ended up being wildly successful. 
Well, I suspect our least successful business um, was um, uh, our belief that we could uh, knock Coca-Cola off the pedestal um, with Virgin Cola. And um, uh, I just loved the idea of the challenge. Um, you know, here was this brand that had been going for 100 years, um, and uh, it didn't, in a lot of countries, have much competition. I mean, obviously, it had Pepsi, but, but, um, uh, but um, they were relatively small in most countries around the world. And, you know, we came up with a formula that tasted just as good. Uh, we had a great brand. It's um, supposed to be brown sugar water. Um, yeah. Well, whatever it is, I'm not going to tell you the formula. Um, and, and, um, uh, but, and when we launched in England um, for two or three months, uh, we, shook, we really shook them. I mean, in, in, wherever we were on sale, we were out selling them two to one. Tesco's, we, we, we were out selling, them, uh, out selling them two to one. And... Um, and I really believe that, you know, this way we're going we're to not go for six. But um, they're just so powerful. I mean, you know, they, they would go into retailers and, um, you know, and if they, if they were stocking Virgin Cola in, you know, a Coca-Cola's fridge or whatever, uh, you know, they made it quite clear that Coke would be removing their products in the fridge as well. And, and um, they... Uh, they were a formidable, a formidable competitor. I mean, I've taken on big airlines and, yes. and done quite well. But um, uh, and I think, I think the lesson I learned from it was that unlike, say, the airline industry or other or the other industries where music industry, other industries where we have actually managed to beat the giants, um, the problem in the soft drinks industry was we couldn't be that different. I mean, you know, there was in a sense no real reason why somebody should buy a virgin cola can than a, than a Coca-Cola can. Mm. Even if we charged less, the retailers didn't like us charging less because they weren't making as big a margin. So, um, so we realized that, that, you know, that, that, um, uh, that it was, it was going to be tougher than, tougher than we thought. We haven't actually given up. I mean, we're we're um, just planning another foray into America and um, you know, we'll, build, we'll, we'll, slowly, we'll slowly build it. And, um, one or two countries. We're number one in Bangladesh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure that I pick it up there. Yeah. I'll watch for it. So that was the most. Um, that, that was one of our more difficult ones. Um, I think Virgin Atlantic was was the was the best example of a company where we had no idea whether we could make a go of it at all. Um, all my fellow directors on the record company, when I said I wanted to start an airline, you know, were, were apoplectic and. Um, and nobody expected us to succeed, and I wasn't sure, but I just felt that you know, traveling on other people's airlines was not a pleasant experience, and I just felt um, that there must be a way of doing it better. And, um, and with all the uncertainty around you, you were so driven, you were, and you also had to leverage some of your crown assets like Virgin Music that you love so dearly. And, uh, yeah, I mean, having decided to do something, I'm not going to... You know, not going to give up, and I'm going to try. To, I'm going to somehow or another make a success of it. And um, you know, we did protect the rest of the group by saying to Boeing, you know, we'll take one plane off you, and if it doesn't work out, we'll hand that plane back at the end of the first year. Um, so we weren't, you know, we weren't. The downside was was protected. Um, but having got sucked into the business, it's addictive. And when 1984 came along, and when British Airways were trying to drive our record company out of, um, sorry, drive our airline out of business. Um, I had to sell our record company to make sure we could pay the bills. Um, but, you know, the airlines developed into something I'm really, really proud of. And uh, we've got a great bunch of people. And, and, I mean, today, bizarrely, 
Virgin Atlantic's market cap is bigger than United's and American Airlines put together, then that's something I never thought I'd say, and I just had to say it. <laughs> well, congratulations. Yeah, it's been a long haul. Yeah. In fact, I wanted to go back and have you visit a moment in time, just a space in time, because Virgin Atlantic is such a wildly successful example of your ambitions kind of being exceeded. Um, if we went back to the day when you were, you were going to do your first Virgin test flight, and uh, at that time you were far from certain what the outcomes would be, but at least you got to the point where everybody was aboard. Um, I guess at the time there was always issues about cash levels and you're always being chased by British Airways, but, but it was hard to determine whether you were chased more by the banks. Um, could, you, could you take me through that day of, of boarding yeah, the plane was, um, and what happened? The plane arrived from Boeing and we were having our inaugural flight um, two days later with 200 journalists and television companies, and, and the CA um, uh, had to have the final test flight. So the civil aviation inspector got on board and sat next to me. Um, the plane rumbled down the runway. Just as it was taking off, um, an enormous bird flew into one of our engines. It was the most almighty bang, flames shot back. Um, plane, you know, 747, no problem. It just soared, soared on and upwards, but it, you know, everybody ashen white faces. And, <laughs> And, um, you know, the CA inspector, you know, rather than sort of saying, well, that's it, you're not going to get your license, he just put his arm around me and said, um, uh, no problem, Richard, these things happen, you know. So, um, <laughs> so uh, we came back and we landed and, and everything else was fine. And the inspector said, look, you know, as long as you get the engine changed by tomorrow, you, you're going to be able to have your license. And um, but the only problem was that because the plane had only just arrived from Boeing and we hadn't had our, our inspection, we, were, we weren't insured, so we were minus a million dollars down with that engine uh, that morning. And uh, that meant that uh, we broke our overdraft limits at the bank. And, um, and I went home on the Monday after the inaugural flight to find my bank manager sitting on my doorstep, uh, waiting to tell me that um, he was going to put the Bergen Group out of business. And uh, he came inside and, and, and told me this, and I just said, look, I'm sorry, but you're not welcome in my house. And, Took him by the arm and took him to the door and gently, gently <laughs> pushed him out. Of the house. Booted him out. And um, and then just I just shook. I mean, I, you know, it's just I mean, I just couldn't believe that um, that he was willing to put you know five thousand jobs out out on the street. Um, we had one of the most successful record companies in the world. We were you know we were very profitable, um, and um, so you know the lesson was we, we we went and saw one or two other banks. They instead of lending us three million pounds, they were willing to lend us 30 million pounds. And, um, you know, you can get too close to your bank. Sometimes it's a bit like your doctor. Sometimes you've got to be willing to change your doctor and, and change your bank and change your lawyers. Um, these, these people shouldn't be sacrosanct. Right. When you were on the plane itself and you heard the explosion, uh, what was going through your mind at that moment? Oh, my. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> they, um, no, I mean... First of all, you know, nobody likes to be on a plane when there's a big bang, um, uh, you know, especially when you've got the um, when it's an inspection. Um, we had I had all 300 members of my staff on board, so I saw you know these young girls who only just joined Virgin Atlantic had just finished their training. Um, I mean, being very strong about it, but um, I had to feel for them. Um, but um, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, if, 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 I'd, if I'd known everything I knew, know today about um, 
uh, the, the wonders of, um, of airlines, I wouldn't have worried at all. I mean, it's, it, uh, you know, we, we, we specialize at Virgin in only flying four-engine planes. Um, and actually, since then, since that occurrence, we will not fly um, two-engine planes across <laughs> the Atlantic. So, you know, BA do, United do, American Airlines do, Virgin will only fly four-engine planes. And we find that it's also customer preference, too. <laughs> Well, I, I, it's helpful to have that story shared because people uh, uh, don't usually have that kind of drama related to the, the implosion is usually of a different kind. Jack Welch talked about blowing up the chemical factory oh, and worrying about, you know. They, um, no, well, it's, things fortunately, I mean, you know, touch wood, I mean, we, I mean, we're in the transportation business in a big way and, you know, we're one of the biggest train operators in the UK and, and um, you know, thank God we've had nothing worse than, than that. Than that. than that. You know, I, I have a theory about this, and please correct me if I'm wrong or direct me in the right direction. This notion of having the airline after the music group, um, many people talk about the eclectic collection of companies, the, the, the many, many different companies and different businesses. But to me, the, what Virgin Atlantic really brought was you, you were now in a business that was sufficiently serious. The guy who brought you the sex pistols was now flying your plane. <laughs> and if he could do that, then I I'd certainly would give that brand... Uh, broader, maybe you could run my money, you could run my pension. Is that part of the thinking for you, or why do you think those things work together? Well, they have worked together. I think, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, if you're a serious enough person to, you know, to run an airline, um, I suppose you should be able to be trusted with somebody's money. So, I mean, I'll tell you one amusing story. I, I was I caught poaching when I was 16. Um, some pigeons on somebody's land, and I got fined seven seven pounds for this. Uh, I don't know what it, whether it's called poaching in America, but yes. Um, and um, when we started the airline, uh, we got our licenses. We started flying to America. Um, American America was willing to allow me to pick up their citizens and fly them fly them back to England, uh, but they wouldn't give me a liquor license. So for 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 five years, I had to um, uh, fly all our liquor from England over to America and then back again. Uh, in order to serve our passengers because of that um, $7 or $8 fine for poaching when I was 60. Um, but um, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think what I learned quite early on in life was that if, if you can run one business, you can run any business. Um, business is all about people, so finding the right people. And, um, and I also learned, I mean, after, after the Kohler experience that we should only go into businesses um, where uh, you know we, we could we could radically make a difference to to, to the business, uh, and they didn't have to be sexy businesses. I mean, the financial service business is, is not a sexy business, um, but uh, but you can make it sexy just by coming out with really innovative product products that uh, shake up an industry and 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 um, and make an industry never the same again. And um, and, and on that basis, it's worth doing, and it enhances the brand, which then enables you to go on to the next challenge. How do you trade off the, the issue of being persistent and focused with, with just being downright stubborn? I, I, when I talk to entrepreneurs who have uh, having worked with Chuck Schwab for many, many years, most of the time he'd make a decision, and as he made that decision, you could see it. If he fell in love with it, the more we would resist, <laughs> the more he was resolved to, to do that, and he's a very competitive guy too, so I'm gonna make this work. And I, I can think of one circumstance that I'd read about with you when you had the, the idea of the mega store, um, where you had the organization at a time where the retail stores were kind of coming along, but not making really much of any money, and this concept of a Paris mega store came along, and 
next thing the board saw was a was a commercial <laughs> advertising the Paris megastore. But you know, when when does that happen, and when do you use that as a leader? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think a, a, a good leader needs to be more more of a benevolent dictator than 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 um, you know. I mean, you, you want you must be able to bring people uh, along with you as much as you can. But in the end, uh, the buck stops with you. And if if you feel um, really strongly about something, you just have to stick your neck out and, and just say, Let, let's do it. Screw it, let's do it. As I was thinking of calling my book at one stage. Um, <laughs> it's the chapter there. <laughs> losing my virginity, I suppose it's got the same meaning. But anyway. <laughs> I think that's a bit um, more powerful. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, and I mean, there have been a, quite a number of occasions where, you know, where, where, where I have just said, like, you know, I, re I just really want to do it. We're just, just going to do it. And some I've fallen flat on my face on, and, and some have been successful on um, the Paris Megastore was one, one that um, proved to be an, an overwhelming success. Um, that has more visitors than the... Um, uh, than the Louvre? Than, than the Louvre, so it's, uh, or, or, the, or, 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 the, or the second largest place to visit in Paris. Anyway, but it's, it's, a, it's a fun place. <laughs> Everyone needs the relief after uh, <laughs> the Mona true. Lisa, I think. Um, if you were to think about a time in your business life when you were as viscerally scared as you might may have been on one of your balloon flights uh, when you were uh, you were looking yourself in the mirror and you were just were you ever at a time when you were feeling just frightened well there is a very thin dividing line between success and failure in business i mean uh, the and uh, you know just you've only just got to go slightly over that line and you can you, you know you could potentially lose everything um, uh, i've set the virgin the Virgin Group of companies up in a way uh, where, where, say, an Enron or a, you know, a, a massive collapse could never happen. Um, each individual company stands on its own two feet. Uh, each individual company has a different partner. So, you know, in America, we've got Sprint in, in, in our mobile phone business. In, uh, you know, our, our, um, in our train business, we've got Stagecoach in the UK. And in Japan, we've got Marui in our retail stores mm -hmm. and, and, and so on all the way around the world in different in, in, in different ventures and um, and you know if um, a calamity happened in one business it wouldn't have that ricocheting effect onto the other businesses um, having said that we've never actually ever let a business go um, but um, you know but God forbid if you know we had three September the 11th in a row and and and, and we had to let the airline business go it wouldn't at least bring the whole pack of cards down um, and I think that's, you know, business, you know, some of the big companies should actually think about that as possibly um, a better philosophy than feeling that they're, they're head of, you know, some gigantic group. Because if you're head of some gigantic group and you get sued, you know, to, to get sued for asbestos or something awful, that the, the whole thing can come down. Um, but having said all that, I mean, you know, the incident where the banker turned up on my doorstep, yes, you know, it was, it was an unnerving, unnerving feeling. And, um, and it was actually as a result of that that I decided, um, you know, to split, the, to split the companies up into separate units and make mm -hmm. sure that that could never happen again. When you think about the, uh, the adventure that you've had with uh, the, the music business, you were collecting people around you who knew a lot about it, whose taste you were relying greatly on, and I'm thinking about the Mike Oldfield um, experience where 
he was, he, you had launched, but he was having to do his first concert and refused to do so. What made you so sure that it was worth giving him your Bentley, <laughs> probably your only hard asset at the time, to bet on this particular piece of music? And, and, and you, you had other people kind of evaluating. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, Tubular Bells was, um, you know, he, he came to me when he was 15 with his tape, and, and, and it, was, it just was magical. And even I, who, you know, who didn't have a lot of time to sit down and listen to music, you know, knew that this was very, very, very special. And, um, and, uh, and you know, we, he couldn't get another record company to put it out, so, you know, we decided to put it out. And, um, uh, and I was determined to make it successful. It was our first, um, you know, first record on our new record company. And um, he went into a panic attack just before um, uh, going on stage go, uh, and refused to, refused to do a concert. And we'd got all the money invested in this concert. We got his career invested in it. And um, so I just drove him round and round and round in, in an old Bentley I'd been given for my wedding. And, um, and in the end, I said, look, you know, do you like the car? And he said, yes. I said, well, look, you know, the keys are yours if you go on stage tonight. <laughs> and and it, was a key, it was a key decision because he did go on stage. Uh, it was televised and um, the record broke out and it came absolutely enormous. And, um, and then we managed to get a bit of it into The Exorcist. And it really, it really you know, I don't think would necessarily be, I necessarily would have flown over on Virgin Atlantic last night because I don't think Virgin Atlantic would have existed if I hadn't managed to you know, to give, the, to give the keys of the car away. Mm, mm -hmm. It started to flow. You've been talking a lot about employees and the, the importance of uh, where, they, where they fit in the food chain. Most conventional businesses think about shareholder value and then they think about customers, or sometimes customers and then shareholder value. Employees is, is usually second or third in the chain. Um, could you talk about your, your viewpoint there? I know Herb Kelleher also has, uh, has views that maybe the employees should be first. Well, I mean, Herb, Herb um, I've just... I don't normally read business books. I read um, recently Nuts, and um, mm. and I think I like to think that that his philosophy and Virgin's philosophy are almost identical, actually. And and um, have a, um, and you know, to me, it just seems to be the the obvious normal way of running a company. Uh, but it, I suppose some people would say it's it's an, exce an exception to the rule, which is which I I you know um, I'm surprised about. But you know, I mean. Uh, I think both our philosophy is that if you put your employees first, if they are really proud of what they're doing, if they really believe in what they're doing, um, if they be, you know, be, believe they've got the tools to do it, and, um, and uh, then, um, uh, then they'll do it with a smile, and, um, and the customers will then be happy. Um, and if obviously the customers are happy, then the shareholders become happy. If you put it the other way around, it just doesn't work, and and if you, and, and the moment you lose it with your employees, as you know, some of the big American carriers have, have um, you see, you'll, you'll you'll see most likely the the end of those businesses, um, and it's very very difficult to ever get it back again. Um, mm -hmm. And you know we have to keep making sure that we don't blow it with our you know with with our, with our people that we that we that you know I mean. I, you know, get out there and about and listen and talk and socialize and party and you know, just try to make sure that you know, I get all the, all the feedback I can to make sure we, we don't make a mistake. I'm going to give you just one last question so that you have plenty of time to go do what you need to do today. I appreciate the time with you. Um, 
and it has more to do with this, this notion of um, learning differences and dyslexia. Um, I remember when I first started working with Chuck Schwab, he was actually afraid to talk about it. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I've got the custody of these people's money and how they're going to feel when they figure out that I, I'm terrified to go out and do this speech because I can't read the script. And, um, could you tell me a little bit about uh, a time when you felt it was working against you and when you decided it was, uh, might have provided a source of power for you? Well, I don't think I'm a bad dyslexic, but I'm certainly dyslexic. I mean, I've, um, you know, I sometimes wondered whether I was just stupid and I've used dyslexia as, a, as, a, as an excuse for stupidity, but I've, I've sort of been tested and I'm told, no, that's right, you're right, Richard, you, well, you are dyslexic. But it, anyway. They tested uh, me and they said you're just stupid. So right, right. Just, anyway, I'm not going to show you my test, but anyway. <laughs> okay. um, but, but, um, but the thing that, that I think illustrated the point quite well was, um, you know, we run the biggest group of private companies in the UK. Um, and up until last year, um, I couldn't work out the difference between net and gross. Uh, and so there would be board meetings and um, people be, you know, would, would realize that, um, so that, so that, so instead of saying net or gross, they'd say, that's good news, Richard, or that's bad news, Richard. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, and it was only then somebody came to me and said, look, um, you know, um, look think of, think of a, a big ocean and you know, a net and you're catching fish in the net and you're pulling it out onto the shore. Now, what's left inside the net is net, and what, you're, what you've left with at the end of the year, and everything else is gross. I'm, oh, wonderful. Now I know why my net has holes in it, and we've got everything. <laughs> um, but um, so it's, it was, it's bizarre things like that. But the, the good thing about being dyslexic is that um, uh, because I need everything simplified to me, I'd simplify everything uh, to other people. And therefore, you know, if I'm running a financial service company, I mean, words like bid, offer, spread, I would not use because I'm... Not helpful you know, to the retail helpful. customer. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but um, I mean, I most likely wouldn't use the real meaning, and that is we're going to take 5% of your money off you before you've <laughs> even started. Um, and as, 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 Skimming. Uh, as bid, offer, spread basically means. Mm. Um, but by, by simplifying everything and making... and, and um, making things clear to me, I, and I can then therefore make it clear to other people. And I think uh, that one of the reasons that Virgin has been successful is that uh, we, you know, we are um, hopefully more open and, um, and um, than than some of our competitors. Richard, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Pleasure. Thank you. That's great. Thanks a lot. That was great. fun. Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson, and please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.